0: Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today.
1: A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And joining us today is the host of the Law and Crime Network, and he's also an attorney, Jesse Weber. Welcome to the program, Jesse. Anna, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, quite a an honor to be on this podcast. I've heard so
2: much about it. It's really grown so well. So thank you for having
1: me. Oh my gosh. Thank you. We love that. We love that. Okay. We've got some amazing cases this week and honestly one of them I'm obsessed with because it's one of the oldest cases that's a cold case in Orange County that's finally been solved. And I just love cases like that. So here's what we're looking at this week. A Los Angeles County judge dismissed the case against four social workers who were charged in connection with the torture death of an eight-year-old boy whose mother was under investigation by those social workers. So it's one of those, the system failing the child. But first, Police in Orange County, California, have solved a 52-year-old cold case. The oldest Jane Doe case in the county. It's unbelievable, Jesse. They used genetic genealogy to identify the the not only the victim, but the suspected killer. It's incredible. This murder happened in 1968. They just didn't identify the victim, as I said. They think they even found the killer the sad thing here is that both the victim and the killer are both dead now so it's it's a limited victory but i think it it's so very hopeful isn't it incredible to see cases like this well i'm not surprised you know we're seeing a lot of this
2: more and more i mean especially when you think about the golden state killer we're in a very different world in 2020 it's not just because we're living in a pandemic and things are absolutely crazy but the truth of the matter is you know this case if you listen to it and you read about it you're like Every so often, there was a breakthrough because there was a breakthrough in science. You know, they found, they collected everything that they could, but what they realized is, okay, is DNA advanced? Well, now we can get a partial DNA print. Okay, is this advanced? Now we get a further clue. But genetic genealogy is something that is absolutely incredible because there's one thing to commit a crime in 2020, and it's very hard to escape that and to not leave a footprint. But Crimes that were committed so long ago we're not getting answers to and like you said, look it's really sad that both the killer or the suspected killer and the victim here are not around but the problem the, the truth is is that's justice we get an uh, for the family members of uh, Miss Pateau they finally get an answer what happened to her and now that's what's incredible and we're going to see more and more of this I know we are.
1: Yeah, I think so. And it's interesting that the evidence never changed. They collected the evidence at the scene. They preserved it. They saved it. They protected it. But the science has changed that they were able to extract more and more as the decades went by from the very same pieces of evidence that existed on the day that they found her body.
2: We're talking about a cigarette, butt. you know, they, they believe she was sexually assaulted. So a rape kit was conducted. If this was a trial, if Johnny Crisco, who is the guy that they believe did this, if there was a trial... You wouldn't really see an eyewitness account. You wouldn't have surveillance footage. You wouldn't have a ton of this. But there is a new sense of reliability with this genetic genealogy that allows people, and you could tell that story. So if you're a prosecutor and you're telling the story about how they were ultimately able to apprehend him, you'd believe it. I mean, and I got to tell you, like from, from my point of view, you always have to be careful. You always have to say the alleged killer, the alleged uh, murderer, here, the suspect. But when you read about this case everybody's definitive in saying he's the one who did it because the evidence is so strong with genetic genealogy and that's what's incredible about it it's something that law enforcement never had an opportunity to use before and it's controversial let's not like let's call it what it is it's very controversial there's some constitutional issues but when you're looking at the golden state killer who terrorized california for decades and then all of a sudden you see him in a courtroom with a face mask on in the middle of the pandemic and now he's going to be spending the rest of his life behind bars, it's absolutely incredible.
1: Yes, and, and what we're talking about is that when you submit your DNA to do your ancestry tests and you're spitting in this little tube, you are, you don't realize it when you check off all these waivers to do this, but in essence, you are submitting your DNA into a massive data databank. Well, well, let's
2: be clear about this, right? So it's not like Johnny Crisco, again, the sus- suspected killer here, or the Golden State Killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, ever did this. It's not like they went into a, a site and said, hey, I'm going to put my DNA up. They had family members or relatives who did it, and that's what's amazing. They, you submit a piece of evidence, DNA from the crime scene. It matches up to a relative. Police say, oh my gosh, that's interesting. Now let's look at this family tree. And through j- everyday, ordinary police work, they narrow it down to the suspect. So From a lawyer point of view, and what we're going to see more and more, the more we see this in trials, is defense attorneys saying, this is totally unfair. My client never submitted anything. This is a violation of their Fourth Amendment. And how can you say that this is fair? But at the end of the day, what I have to tell you, and this is my personal opinion, DNA and what you leave behind or what someone else leaves behind. I don't think you can expect that same degree of privacy, that same degree of that you don't believe law enforcement can invade your 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 personal effects, your your body in the same way. So I don't believe that those arguments are going to work so well, but it is an interesting thing to think about because these killers never really did that. They never went onto the website and submitted their own information. Somebody else related to them did that.
1: Yes, but in order for the police and the district attorney to build cases against these suspected killers, they then have to collect the DNA themselves, get a search warrant, dig through their trash, follow them, pull the pizza slice out, whatever they do, and then get that match independently. So, I mean, there are a few more layers beyond the family tree, but it it is really, it's where the case turns. So, let's go back to the facts. uh, right. Let's go back and look at this case because it's so interesting. So it was March 14th, 1968. Can you imagine? Does anybody even remember what was going on in 1968 in the world? Three boys were playing on a farm, and they found the body of a young woman in a field in Huntington Beach, California. She had been sexually assaulted. She was beaten, and her neck was slashed, but no one knew who she was. She was just Jane Doe, and ultimately she was buried in an unmarked grave in Newport Beach, California. So... Here's what she was wearing, a floral print blouse, purple pants, and size 7 shoes. They were loafers, but because the loafers were made in upstate New York, for a moment there, detectives thought, oh, maybe we can figure out where these shoes were sold and who bought the shoes, and does she look like anybody who bought the shoes? That didn't go anywhere. Now, because of today's DNA technology, we now know she was Anita Louise and police believe her killer as you said was johnny crisco now using dna evidence that was collected 52 years ago and then preserved this is how they solved it now let's talk about the last time anyone heard from anita because what we have to remember here is for more than 50 years the family of this woman had no idea what happened to her it's as if she disappeared off the face of the earth she was dead but they didn't know it right so you can imagine all sorts of things The last time they heard from her, Jesse, she had written home um, some postcards and some letters to the family, and this happened one month before she was killed. She grew up in Maine, so she sent them um, the postcards there. She was one of seven children from Augusta, Maine. This is just to give you an idea of what was going on in Anita's life before she was killed, because at the end of the day, we're talking about a human life and a person, so... She had moved to California a few months earlier. She was working as a waitress. She was doing really touristy things. And she told her family, I will be home by May. Mm -hmm. Right? So they were expecting her home. And that's it. That's the last anyone in that family heard from her.
2: And that's so eerie. Because when you think about it, people who leave out of state, the worst nightmare of a family is, is my child, is my sister. Are they going to be safe when you go to this faraway land? And you know, you listen to the family members that say that she was very adventurous. She wanted a different kind of life, but the idea that she was actually planning to come home, but she never returned home, is what makes that so eerie. That's one of the reasons I think investigators didn't know who she was. She wasn't. She her house wasn't nearby. It wasn't like she grew up there, and yeah. that's what's so tragic and why it took so long.
1: Yeah, and trying to match things. You know, we think of everything in the terms of what is available to us now and technology. That was not the case back then. There was no social media. There was no intranet. I mean, there was none of this. So you have to understand everything was very slow. And really, when you think about it manually, you're making a call. So the DNA evidence that was collected also includes the killer's DNA, the suspected killer, Johnny Crisco, who in 1963, this would have been five years before Anita's murder, had been discharged by the army. Because of psychological problems, he was violent and he was very aggressive. So that's just a little information on him. And what's interesting is that no one is quite sure if they knew each other and if they did, how they knew each other, right? Yeah, so
2: I there are theories out there that he might have gone on a date with her. They're, believe it or not, if you look at a picture of him before he passed away, it doesn't look like much. But, but when you listen to what he was like back in the day, they said he was very charming. He's got this bad boy reputation. And obviously, there was a component of sexual assault here. So there was a belief, how did they know each other? Perhaps he took her on a date, things went obviously the wrong way. Uh, That's a theory. We're probably never going to know what the connection was. But maybe that makes sense. Maybe if people try to understand exactly what happened.
1: Well, I think what will happen now that their names have been identified and now because of social media, let's just say buddies of his that may still be alive or relatives of his that may be alive or and girlfriends that she may have had here at the time may say, oh, my God, I, I remember now Anita was going to go on. it. You know, I think yeah. that is going to be filled in because of technology now that we may hear the memories of people right? Because well, if you were her girlfriend, you'd be like, what happened to Anita? She never came home. Well, what's
2: fascinating is as soon as it came out that they believe he's the person who did this, his exes came out and some said, there's no way he could have done this. And some said, yeah, I totally believe it. So once you get put it in people's minds that this is who he was and who she was, people said, oh yeah, I remember that. And there's a hotline right now. There's a tip line. If you know anything about this case, now that we have more details, come forward. So yeah, maybe I spoke a little prematurely and said, we may, we'll never really know. But to think about these two, and they were really strangers, how they connected on that night is just, you know, you wish you could go in a time machine and obviously uh, disconnect them. But that's that's the problem right there when you think about
1: it. Yeah, and he apparently had a long string of arrests, so he was always getting into trouble with the law. He had been married and divorced three times, so he didn't exactly, plus the discharge that makes, you know, suggestions about other issues he may have had, so he... He clearly had his, his own issues here.
2: Well, there was also a history of violence against women. So if you think about it, it, he was accused, not a ton of convictions, by the way, but a lot of allegations that he abused the women that he was involved with, on top of the fact that my understanding is he went to the military on an allegation or possible uh, record of uh, statutory rape. And there was also allegations of child molestation. So when you think about this history of his... First of all, I think it's remarkable when you hear about the women who he was involved with who said that, thank goodness, we were never a victim of his, but to commit this crime or allegedly commit this crime and then live an entire life, but to hear what he was up to, it kind of makes sense as a pattern.
1: Yeah, it really does, isn't it? It, The whole thing is so scary. And to to think about that he was never even considered a suspect at the time. He just was not on the radar of the detectives on this murder for whatever reason we don't know. So let's let's go through some of the evidence that was actually preserved that day. So they collected things like tire tracks, they made copies of the tire tracks because this was in a field, there was a cigarette butt that was found near the body that was taken and collected. And also of course they kept her clothes and because she had been sexually assaulted they did a rape kit. So they were able to gather some DNA there. So for years Nothing happens with this, right? Nothing. Then 2001, things start changing in science and technology as far as DNA. So that gave the, the cops the ability to extract some of the DNA from her clothes and from the rape kit and, and get a better idea of what was going on. There's, the results come back, and all they have is it's an unknown male. Okay, well, we kind of suspected there was a male involved to begin with, so there's no progress there. now. Yeah. 10 years later, this is 2011, okay, things are really changing. Cops were able now to match the DNA on the cigarette butt to the DNA from the rape kit. And And Jesse, tell me how important that is because that's that's not just like a random cigarette butt anymore, right? In this case, if you're going to prosecute.
2: Well, I, I think there's a couple of things to note. One, I don't want anyone to have the impression that this wasn't a thorough investigation back in the late 60s. They ha- did whatever they could do to try to find out. So that means collecting any piece of evidence. Who knew that cigarette butt, which could have been related to the crime or not, how important it would have been. But to collect that on top of the, the actual victim, what was found on the victim, now you're connecting it. Now you're getting a better sense of what happened here. By the way, got to tell you, you got Johnny Crisco who died in 2015 from throat cancer, smoking cigarettes. You, know, you kind of put two and two together, together get the, the, the story here but really that was a huge breakthrough because as you said they didn't know that 10 years ago the 10 years before that they didn't know it back in the 60s and as it said this case progressed as science progressed
1: exactly so now we have the cigarette butt is matching the dna in the rape kit so they took some dna from a blood stain on anita's blouse and also they took her fingerprints and they put it in the system. Remember, by this time, we're starting to see things more computerized information, even though it's not nearly as good as it is now, but we're seeing advances there. So they entered into the National Database for Missing Persons to see if they could identify the victim, and Jesse, nothing pops. Still nothing. Then yeah. last year, it's like the seas parted, the skies opened, everything is is clear again. Last year, everything changed when they started doing family trees. Okay, so Huntington Beach Police and the DA's investigators decided to start making a family tree for the suspected killer. It's interesting. They start that way with the DNA that way as opposed with um, the murder victim. And again, he was apparently never a suspect, but he was a career criminal. And then this year they start the, the DNA tree for the victim. And that's how they were able to identify Anita. And here's the twist that I love in all of this. Okay, so there was a woman who is kind of an expert in this area of, of tracing family trees. And she had a relative who had disappeared. And she thought, my God, maybe it's this Jane Doe. So she contacts the Huntington Beach police to try to work with them. Okay, it's not her relative, but she turns to the cops and she says, okay. This doesn't help me or my family, but can I help you with my mad skills? And so she mm-hmm. helps them build the family trees. Isn't that, I mean, I get chills just even thinking about that, how like it didn't help her, but she still had the goodwill and the good heart to help some other family and look what she did.
2: Well, thank goodness, because again, the police don't know about this technology and they weren't didn't have these tools available. So I'm actually curious as more and more cases come up, and this is a really cool science, especially if you're really into cold cases and trying to solve them. If you're going to see more people enter into this arena, you're going to see more people try to get careers in this because what she did, she's the hero of the story, obviously. I mean, to think about making, connecting these dots. And my understanding is she was able to connect it pretty quickly, you know, and that's what's amazing
1: she's just it, just really extraordinary and and I just love that it's like a citizen detective if you will and they're so helpful now so um since the news is broken it but actually right before they broke the news um the authorities here in California were able to dig up what used to be Jane Doe's grave took the remains and they were taken to Maine and Anita has been properly buried with her family and she was given a proper memorial service and one of the DA investigators actually went to the service. Obviously, he took Anita back to the family, and he stayed. You know, I mean, they're not going to FedEx the woman after all this. So, um, that's, that's a beautiful, lovely ending to a tragic, tragic story.
2: And, and I think the note that they left was, we miss you. That yeah, that's what is they- just such a touch to this. Because think about if she was alive, what impact she could have had in their family. And this was something, a mystery that they never really understood. They, I mean, think about this, to not even know what happened to her. You know, They thought she was alive. They thought she was dead. To not have that certainty is sometimes worse than obviously knowing the truth of what happened. So, yeah, we talk about what's justice. Clearly, Johnny Crisco, if he's the one who did this, he's, he passed away. He's not in jail. He never was punished for this. But yet the family has closure. That's justice.
1: And I will say, and and I don't mean to sound mean here, but um, when Johnny Crisco died, nobody claimed his body, not a family member, not a friend. So he kind of died alone, and he ended up getting, uh, because he was a veteran, he got um, some recognition at a memorial service. But if his death is a little cold and a little lonely, I'm okay with that.
2: Well, that's what they think about his life anyway. If you read it, his life was cold and lonely. This is a guy who actually said that he was in Vietnam and bragged about it when really that wasn't the case. You know, I think the furthest he ever got was Fort Brad. So this is a guy who his death seemed to echo his life.
1: And the DA did say that it was sad that, that Anita's family, Anita and her family cannot get full justice because Johnny Crisco is dead. But again, there is some justice here, not exactly what they wanted. And, um, you know, the, the other great thing is we say now about technology and social media. So, one of the original investigators on this case, who is now 89 yeah. years old, mm-hmm. Earl Robitali, remembers this case because it always bothered him. And he says, My God, DNA was not even an option. It wasn't a thought. It wasn't yeah. even anything. Yeah. It, it wasn't a seed in our brains. And he said, um, He does remember one thing that there was a forensic dentist. Who was trying to help them because they were trying to really figure this out. And the dentist insisted that the victim had had such bad dental work done that the dentist said Mexico. She had her teeth fixed <laughs> yeah. in Mexico. So yep. so like the team does this huge U-turn and the focus of the investigation goes towards Mexico, whether she may be Mexican or and it 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 really was like a ridiculous detour that took them nowhere. Yeah, it's a rabbit hole that they unfortunately
2: went down, but that is just the circumstance of the technology. You do what you can do. And so they're going to follow what leads they were going to follow. Unfortunately, that was really out there, but that is just a circumstance of not having enough information, not having the tools available at the time. So I can't blame them. Again, I want to make it very clear. None of the investigators did anything wrong here. It was just the circumstance that this woman was killed in 1968.
1: Yeah. In fact, I, I was looking on the Huntington Beach police uh, Facebook page yesterday and, um, you know, Huntington Beach is not a really big community, right? It's got a lot of tourists, but there's a set group of people who have grown up in Huntington Beach like any other community. And it was wonderful. I um, There was a posting from a woman who said I rem- her dad was a cop and he's no longer alive. And she said, I remember how this case ate at my father. I wish that he were alive to see this today. Again, f- more than 50 years ago. So a lot of people won't be alive. Thank God for Earl, who's 89 years old. <laughs> right. And amazing memory.
2: <laughs> I can't yeah. even remember what I had for lunch. So it's pretty amazing to think about that. But the truth of the matter is, you know, we look at this from across the country and wow, what an amazing case. But to think about if you're part of that community and your parents or grandparents said, I remember that case, what a mystery. We, we This is not something of uh, three boys find. Uh, a woman on the out in a field, and no one knows who she is. That's a story that you know goes through history, and everybody was trying to figure it out. And, and kudos to law enforcement to never giving up. You know, never giving up. They could have given up on this. They could have given up, especially when the family didn't even know what happened there. It's not like they kept asking the police department, "Do you have any leads?" But they never gave up, no matter what happened. As there was advancements in technology, I think that's amazing because there are so many cold cases. But to to stay vigilant with it. That's something that I was surprised about um, and it obviously worked out.
1: Yeah, what I'm seeing a lot and we're reporting a lot of this on this podcast because, you know, finally there is some form of justice or resolution that it is getting much easier to work a cold case, if you will, because as long as you have preserved evidence, you can start extracting the DNA because there's new technology to do that and you can go ahead and start submitting it. And the more you do that. You know, that doesn't take a lot of work is what I'm saying. You know, you don't have to go back and interview a hundred people. Now you can let the DNA and the science do that work for you. And I think we are going to get a lot more solved because well, of it.
2: We also don't know how many people have already submitted their information to genealogical websites. And look, some websites are going to fight this. They don't want to cooperate with law enforcement. They want to protect the privacy of their customers. I get that. But at the same point. So many people have already done it for all different kinds of reasons. They want to know their family tree, you know, all this different things. But to think about what's already on there and what can connect you—that's why we live in a day and age where it's almost impossible to commit a murder and get away with it. Not just for this, but you know, technological advances between surveillance footage and cameras and and DNA and cell phones—you leave a footprint. But now with this, it's becoming almost inescapable unless you really don't leave a dna footprint on a, uh, a crime scene that you would get away with it that's the chilling part so i wonder i keep thinking i was think about this are there people out there who are like oh great i got away with it for 30 years 40 years i hope i don't know and i always think that did the golden state killer know that he was going to be picked up one day did he know no, that he, he was going to not at all
1: exactly, exactly. Absolutely not! Are you killing, kidding, (laughs) killing? Can you right? No, he was brazen. Wow, what a case! Thank you so much for your insight on this one. Of course. So Jesse, staying in California for our next case, but we're moving over now to a neighborhood called Palmdale. Uh, This has become a national story. It is, of course, a national issue, and there's even a Netflix documentary about this case. Uh, You know, we cover a lot of cases about children who die at the hands of their abusive parents. And then, you know, naturally we always ask, almost all of the time, almost, these families and these children are either under investigation, either under the supervision of um, Child Protective Services, or the children have been taken away and brought back, right? So, So we see this theme all of the time in crimes against children. And what is so unique about this case is that Authorities decided to go ahead and charge the social workers with a form of child abuse because of their inactions may have led to the death of this child. And that's what I find interesting here.
2: Yeah. I I First, let me just say, I've covered a ton of child abuse cases, trials regarding it, horrific things. This is the worst case of child abuse that I personally have ever heard, ever. And I hate talking about it. I mean, it's important to talk about it. It's such a pivotal case, but it's the most disturbing thing I've ever heard. And, and I, I think the problem is, and one of the reasons that people love true crime, people want a sense of understanding why. Why do these crimes happen? Why would somebody do this? And the problem that I keep coming back to with this case is I don't understand why. I really don't understand. I don't understand why this child died and I don't understand how this case slipped through the cracks and as much as I look into it as much as I've read the law on it I still am left with that and that's what I'm actually so disturbed by that I I wish I had a better answer for it but it is just absolutely chilling to think that this still happens and that this could happen and to think about the young boy here, what he went through, if everybody just takes a step back and think about that, that's, that's something I just can't process.
1: I can't process it, but over and over, it is the same story. Abusive parents kill their children. Children cry out for help. And in this case, this little eight-year-old, according to court records, wrote a suicide note. So there are almost always cries for help. People see things, people hear things, and yet these children still die at the hands of their parents and in the most heinous ways that anyone can imagine. It is disgusting, it is disturbing, and I don't know. Can the law ever truly protect a child from a demented parent that has no moral compass and has no problem torturing a child and then killing him or her?
2: Especially when you have people who work for a uh, Department of uh, Child and Family Services that take the word of the parent over the child. And, or you have a situation where you don't assess, well, maybe the child is not really telling the truth about what's going on because they're afraid of the parent or the caregiver. That's what happened here. That's what happened here. So many instances where this could have been averted if you just would have listened, but you didn't. And, only, and I know we're going to go through the facts of this case, but the teacher in this case was the only one who was listening and tried to do as much as she could to save this child but at the end of the day there was nothing more to do
1: no so what this case is what the what the latest in this long case is that this has been an attempt to hold the social workers responsible for the death of this 8 year old so these charges were brought against four Los Angeles county social workers two social workers and two and the two supervisors The boy had been beaten and tortured by his mother and by her boyfriend. The boy, Gabriel Fernandez, died in May of 2013, and we're still discussing this seven years later. So a few weeks ago, the judge, hearing the case against the social workers, Mm -hmm. dropped the charges against them. Now, the four had visited the child, and this is what's so interesting. You know, they were involved with, like, two had visited, and then the supervisors, yet with all this crap going on, nobody, nobody found that there was reason enough to remove the child. And, and this case, you know, living here in Los Angeles, I can tell you that this is the kind of case, um, that we all have talked about and heard and seen the progression. And it was years after even the mother and the boyfriend were convicted of murdering the child that the charges were brought against the social workers. It was a way for, um, the authorities here in in Los Angeles County to try to hold someone accountable, that it wasn't enough to say the kid slipped through the cracks, right? And that's what right. this case was about, this this most recent legal case. So Gabriel's mother, Pearl Fernandez, was sentenced to life in prison without parole for the murder of her son. And her boyfriend, Isaro Aguirre, was sentenced to death with special circumstances because he's the one who apparently physically tortured the boy in this instance. The question was... And it is still now, were these social workers incompetent? Did the system work against the child and maybe the social workers to make it possible for them to make a difference? Or were these social workers actually child abusers because of the end results? And that's what this case was trying to resolve, but the judges dropped the charges and said, no, you know, we cannot cannot charge you with with child abuse?
2: Well, there's a couple of things there. So one, they were charged with child abuse and also falsifying records.
1: Yes, we're going to get to that too.
2: And the thing with that is, so when I was in law school, one of the things that we always learned was a judge, a court, they always think about a slippery slope. Well, if we hold this person accountable, what happens here? And I think a big concern was if we hold social workers accountable, if we hold them criminally liable for the actions of the caregiver, the actions of a parent, we're gonna have a situation where social workers are gonna be more concerned about their careers than the safety of the children. Because if you flip it around and you say, well, I'm gonna take this child away, even if I hear that the the parent slapped the slapped the child once, I'm gonna take the child out there because I'm afraid that I'm gonna be convicted and and I'm gonna be sentenced to child you know convicted of child abuse and sentence when in reality, it might be beneficial to keep the child in that home and do a situation of counseling or things like that. Here the problem was, and the court said that you, and we can get into the law of it, about how they ultimately decided that these social workers shouldn't be held accountable, but it was a situation where they didn't want to have a slippery slope, that we can't hold social workers to this level of degree. They could be fired. You could say that they were really bad at their jobs. That's one thing, but to hold them criminally liable here is a different story. I have my own opinion about that because I think that that's not an, we can't just paint a brush and say that social workers are not always responsible because there's a situation, and the court said the same thing, like it's a police officer, right? So if a police officer ultimately shoots someone, you can ultimately charge the officer with murder. But if an officer chooses not to arrest somebody, you're not going to prosecute the officer for doing that. You can fire the officer, and that's how they made that comparison. I think if you're in the position of your whole responsibility as a social worker is to protect the child, and there's ample evidence the child dies from that, and you allegedly falsified reports, you are entering into a different threshold. So you could say, yeah, the the court said, oh, they weren't really um, officers under the statute, or they didn't have legal control over the child in the same way that a caregiver has. So they didn't have legal control over the, fa- the parents. So they're not responsible. Yeah, I get it. I'm a lawyer. I, I can read through the text myself. I still think that there was an element here that was missing. And I think there is, a, there was a tragedy here with, with what happened.
1: And uh, the four social workers were immediately put on whatever desk duty is for a social worker. I'm really not sure. Um, then they were ultimately fired. And then these charges were brought against them. So there there were actions that were taken without question. And I, I do believe in my heart that no one wants to see a child tortured and no one wants to see a child die. But at the end of the day, if you are tasked with trying to protect a child and you are either, uh, the allegations about the falsifying of, of the records included things like, Uh, records that were incomplete notes that didn't have the details that reflected what should have been in an interview not fully interviewing the child or saying that you did interview the child and you didn't um failure to see that the child's physical condition was clearly deteriorating and not noting that in in the notes those are some of the examples
2: well just to add to that they also said in the reports that the mother pearl and the young boy Gabriel, they both had the capacity to go through counseling and that Pearl had a support system. What? If you read through the facts of that, how do you on earth, do you think that that's the case? So that's where it kind of became that clearly they were lying about what, what it was. I mean, do you really have that bad a judgment or did you falsify the report?
1: What's also interesting is that, um, and, and this happens a lot, police the sheriff's department because sheriff's patrol in that area were called to the house numerous times. I believe there's something like 9 sheriff's deputies um who had responded to the house over the years and you know that's always an indication that there's trouble and, and and one of the points here is okay so they would have either knocked on the door entered the house and they themselves did not think that the situation for which they were called ever warranted removing the child, arresting the parents, or doing something, correct? So it's not just the social workers here. Right.
2: Well, Well, there's a problem. And the problem was is that whenever there was a visit to the home, Gabriel, who would originally tell his teacher that he was being abused, she saw the bruises, he would change his story when, when, the, um, when there was a visit and say, oh, it was an accident, I was just joking. The other kids who were in the house would say, we've never saw anything. Um, I believe Pearl and her boyfriend took drug tests that came back negative. So it looked like a situation. Uh, and by the way, Pearl said that her son Gabriel was making all this up or embellishing because he really wanted to live with the grandparents. He has uh, social issues. He's aggressive. So the fact that they flipped the narrative, I understand there was confusion here. And I get that. And, but also, as I said at the beginning, you have to read through the lines. You have to read through the lines. Is it not possible that Gabriel was scared, that the kids were scared, that the, the, the mother or the boyfriend were saying whatever they needed to say in order to get out of it? I mean, yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty, but...
1: Aren't you worried? As I was reviewing the facts last night for this, I started thinking about because of the pandemic and because of the limited services and the reduced face-to-face contact or visits, I know that domestic violence... Mm -hmm. has increased but what about the kids who are being abused like if if we thought that the system was imperfect and still is is it not far worse now when these kids are even more vulnerable
2: And that's an amazing question, because you have to think about what is the process that goes into these visits now? Is it, are you doing it over Zoom when you could hide a lot of what's going on? Do you you make a visit when everybody who makes a visit to another person's home wearing a mask, all you want to do is run out of there as quickly as possible? And this is not like a domestic violence situation where you can have a spouse call up and say they're in trouble. You have young children who have no way to ask for help. I think you've really hit it on the head. So this pandemic is creating a worse situation in a lot of ways, including that.
1: So let's go into the facts of what happened with Gabriel a little bit more. When paramedics found him, he was, now remember, he's eight years old. He was naked. He wasn't breathing. He was severely beaten. His skull was crushed in. He had three broken ribs. And he had been shot with a BB gun. And the pellets of the BB gun were lodged in his lung and in his groin. Okay. And burns.
2: And burns. And burns.
1: So in 2016, so that would have been three years after Gabriel's death, that is when the two social workers and their supervisors were finally charged with the one count of felony child abuse, one count of falsifying the records. Um, And the prosecutors kept saying over and over again, they missed warning signs. And and I know we just talked about that, but, but, but there's a theme here, right? So... When they um, looked at the records, because there was a grand jury, and fortunately, as a result of the grand jury, that's the other thing that's not happening now, Jesse. Grand juries are not being convened. They can't because of the social distancing issue. Right. So that's when they found a lot more information. And, you know, one of the biggest problems that I find with getting justice for children of um, child abuse, especially when the system is involved, is that both the Department of Family Services, their attorneys... All claim, all claim that all of this information is privileged, confidential, and can never be released. And that is why the public and reporters, it's something I have fought against here in LA County for a long time, you know, advocating for more transparency because of cases like this. And I have to tell you, we've barely made a dent. Barely yeah. made a dent.
2: It's a sensitive, because you're dealing with sensitive subject matter. You know, there's one thing you're dealing with children, and, and I get that argument. But I think this is the kind of situation where you need even more transparency. And look, the the sad fact of the matter is, when you have a case like Gabriel, Gabriel Fernandez that makes it to the headlines, there has to be change. There has to be. Because unfortunately, while we see this more and more, people are realizing that it shouldn't be happening. And there needs to be a change in the system.
1: So as part of the further investigation into what happened to Gabriel and the grand jury hearings, and finally some of this stuff was made public, um, we found out that Gabriel's older siblings testified that Gabriel had been forced to eat cat feces. And if he vomited, he was forced to eat his vomit. He slept locked in a cabinet with a sock in his mouth to keep him from screaming. So that's the life that he lived. And it may not be criminal what happened. To the others who were responsible for Gabriel's life and safety. But it's morally a crime. It is morally a crime what has happened to this child. And I think
2: that they realize that. So even though they don't have criminal liability, they have all expressed regret and they all understand that this is a nightmare. They all wish they could have done something different. You know, I remember hearing that one of the supervisors said that. 200 cases he was overlooking, but this is the one that's going to haunt him for the rest of his life and rightfully so. So this is a situation where you know if you have a textbook example of what we should have done more, this is that example. This is the one that you need to say, we need to change the way that we're doing this because it didn't work. That's the end of the problem. At the end of the day, nobody cares how you build a watch. They just want it to work. At the end of the day, we want children to be safe. We want the social workers to do their job and do everything that they can. So when the fact of the matter is, the teacher, Gabriel's teacher, seemed to be doing more because every time he came in with a bruise or any time she suspected something, she did her duty and immediately contacted the social workers. There were times towards the end of this, and again, when the social workers were told these different stories that Gabriel was really fine and all this, when they stopped returning her calls. So the teacher, I really believe, was the hero of this entire saga and tried to do as much as she could. But there's only so much a teacher can do. They're supposed to report it, but they're not supposed to go in the home and take the child away. Yeah.
1: I'm just going to leave you with the uh, final note from the judge about this case, about whether those social workers and their supervisors can be held accountable in cases like this. And, And this is what the higher court ruled. Although there may be consequences to social workers who fail to fulfill their duties, the consequences do not include criminal liability for child abuse. But as I said, morally, yes, absolutely. So it's time for our comment section. These are the crime stories that you all are talking about. Georgia inmates are praised after saving the life of a deputy In the jail. Okay, so three inmates at the Gwinnett County Jail are being called heroes after they helped to save the life of a deputy who was having some kind of a heart attack. So the inmates were locked in their cells, and then they saw the deputy like lose consciousness and fall. And, and he split his head open from their perspective. So the inmates, they're locked in their cells and there's nothing they can do. So they're screaming and screaming, and that's not getting the attention of anyone outside. So they're calling um, to the fallen deputy, trying to see if they can wake him, you know, with the screaming and the banging and all of this. And so he he manages to hear them calling his name. He manages to get on his feet, and then he presses the the button to open the cells, right? <laughs> And so the first people to render any help to him are the very people that he is tasked with keeping incarcerated. And so they came to his assistance, and this is what I love. They actually called for help. They went to the deputy's desk. They got on the phone calling for help. (laughs) They took his radio, radioed for help, and that's ultimately what ended up, you know, saving his life he is now recuperating at home and that's such a hopeful story isn't it
2: see i think it's like the shawshank redemption but the pg version like the good version you know because if you think about prison it's supposed to be rehabilitative what a great job i mean these guys are fantastic i also do wonder if they think like hey maybe we'll get time off you know for good behavior if you talk about good behavior what better than
1: doing this Really, I mean, in a time of COVID, if there's anything that expresses to me clearly with actions, not with words, that you have, that you value human life, this is the action that proves that to me. I totally
2: agree with you. You look at prisoners and inmates, it's sometimes like you dehumanize them. People are like, oh, there's, you know, forget about them. Who cares about them?
1: Human beings, too.
2: You know, human beings, too, who are sometimes do these really good humane action so i mean it's a it's a i guess a good story to come out of prison which you don't really say you never see a good story coming out of prison
1: no not really and so um this is what our listeners and viewers posted martha d writes so if they aren't violent criminals release them early some states are releasing (laughs) real criminals because of covid totally agree with you martha david o writes not everyone behind bars is a bad person absolutely and Alejandra D. writes, finally something good. I agree. Let's end this very sad podcast <laughs> with something hopeful here. Um, Jesse, this was a-, a pleasure. Where can people find you and follow sure. you on social media?
2: First of all, Anna, thank you so much. This was amazing to do this with you. Um, so if you want to follow, obviously, what I do, you can go to Long Crime. Uh, I'm also the co-host of a radio show out in New York City with my father called Always in Fashion. So you can visit the 710WR website. But for social media, Twitter at Jesse Cord Weber or on Instagram at Real J. Weber.
1: Okay. Tell me about this radio show with your dad. It has nothing to do with crime.
2: Thank goodness it has nothing to do with crime. So my dad has had quite the storied career in the fashion or apparel industry, wrote a book, turned it into a radio show. I came with him one day, I was joking around with him and they said, we want you to be a co-host with him. And literally what it is, is a father and son show. We talk about business, we talk about fashion, we talk about life, all different kinds of career lef- lessons, lifestyle, often do you get a father and son show. So we, we've been doing this for about four years. It's really fun to do. We have a good back and forth i love it i love it and it's kind of light you know none of this whole stuff that we get into so it's a little bit of a change of the dynamic
1: oh my god i love that and so i'm not in new york but are are the episodes online or yeah, or, yeah. okay so if you go
2: you go to apple Podcasts. oh or great the, okay iheart I radio app you can listen to all of them
1: oh i love that thank you jesse i can't wait to listen to, <laughs> to you and your dad talk fashion nobody's dead <laughs> <laughs> hey, you uh, well that is it for our show um, as always you can find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher Google Play, wherever it is that you get your podcasts and of course on YouTube if you want to subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com please do, we would love it so until next week, this is True Crime Daily the podcast, I'm Anna Garcia and as we always say don't do crime